and welcome to another episode of Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guests are Todd Neenkirk and Aaron Stanish. They're partners and co-founders at Four Kitchens, a web consultancy and design firm based in Austin, Texas. And they're also both graduates of the University of Texas. They talked about how their time at the university and their work at the Texas Travesty, a student publication at UT, led them to the growing world of web publishing. They also described how they've seen the web change the media ecosystem and what it's like to work in a constantly evolving industry. They spoke on November 30th, 2015 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Welcome to our last guest speakers. Uh, and we have a team for our final uh, media industry conversation for the semester. Those of you who haven't been here before, I'm Elisa Perrin. I'm uh, one of the faculty members teaching this course along with my colleague, Cindy McCreary in the back. And I'd like to thank our TAs, Kyle Rather and Tim Piper for all of their assistance throughout the semester. And also thank you to the RTF department and the College of Communication. Uh, you are here to see uh, our two guests who are partners and co-founders of Four Kitchens web design and development consultancy firm, Todd Neenkirk and Aaron Stanish. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. Um, and it's a thrill to have them here today. Uh, Todd is an RTF grad, and Aaron is an advertising grad. So we have two different Moody alums for our final guests. Uh, Todd is digital strategist along with partner for Four Kitchens, involved in building websites as well as writing, editing, and managing online and print publications. He's also a prominent speakers, speaker at conferences around the world, advocating on behalf of open source. Uh, Aaron is creative director as well as partner. Uh, he consults about content strategy and mobile usability for websites and apps. Uh, and as I mentioned before, they're co-founders of Four Kitchens, which is an Austin-based company founded in 2006. Um, and they've won a ton of awards and honors already in their less than 10 years of operations, including Austin Business Journal's one of the best places to work in Central Texas, uh, the Web Marketing Association's Web Award, and an Emmy for outstanding interactive program for their work on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon website. So we're gonna talk about many of the activities that they've been involved in and their views on the media industries. Uh, their clients include not just media-related and publishing-related companies, but also educational institutions, nonprofits, and healthcare companies, among many others. And so uh, we have a lot to talk about, I'm sure. Join me in welcoming Todd and Aaron. start off with the basic question of uh, how did you uh, start thinking about the career that you've ended up on? What did, did you think about this type of trajectory while you were at UT? Um, I'm going to handle that. All right. Uh, so how did we get started? Um, we met, Aaron and I, and my wife and our uh, other business partner, former business partner, David Strauss, 
we were all editors of The Travesty, which is still around, but back then had just started uh, in 1997. So uh, we met um, doing and writing inappropriate things in a student publication for many years, and we really enjoyed project-based work, and we really liked working together. So after we graduated, and we graduated within about a three or four year span, uh, we all came to the realization that we really hated our jobs outside of school, and um, something that you're all, there's going to be a crushing moment. Uh, how many people are graduating, by the way, soon? Okay, in the next year? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, you're all going to be really sad uh, about a year after you graduate because you're going to be thinking like, why doesn't the world appreciate me and how come I'm not being challenged all the time and why aren't there great ideas being thrown at me everywhere? You have to find your own, right? Uh, so that's what we did. We decided that we didn't like our jobs and we had nothing to lose because we were already completely broke and we were basically all living together anyway off of what was then a really cheap apartment off of uh, East Oltorf. Now that's like the cool part of town. Um, so we all uh, got together and thought, let's start a publication, because that's what we know and that's what we love to do. So we created an alternative to the Alternative Weekly here in town. Uh, everybody knows the Austin Chronicle, right? So we wanted to compete with them. Uh, in 2006, we started a publication called That Other Paper. The joke being there was the Austin Chronicle and then there's that other paper. So we started that publication and we had to uh, put it online because we had no money to print. We wanted to print someday. Uh, and we had no money to pay people to make websites, so we had to learn how to do that. And that's how we got started making websites. Uh, and as time went on, we didn't know it at the time, but we had built one of the largest websites on the internet using a specific piece of software that we used to build it. It's a content management system called Drupal. I'm sure nobody here really cares about that, but that's what uh, powers the internet in, in some corners of the world. Uh, and uh, we started getting phone calls from people saying, hey, did you build that thing? Can you build that for me? And it started to become a consultancy. And we were building sites for people and taking on clients. And one thing led to another. Uh, and now we're doing the work that we're doing today. I think the, the other piece I'll add to that is you know, when, we, when we started at the Travesty, we were doing print design, web design, writing, editing, des graphic design. And so we really wanted to kind of carry, we, we still had all those passions in, in starting our company. So you know, when we first started the company, we really wanted, uh, I think we, we started with a broad focus that we would still do branding and website design and graphic design. And, as uh, things went along, I think you know, even even just having four people, we started to really narrow that focus. Uh, maybe it was because we couldn't get <laughs> all of that work, and we definitely were getting um, you know calls and emails for for web design. So I, I don't know if it was just uh, like the force uh, forces of nature that kind of drew us into that. But um, I, I think ultimately, kind of narrowing our focus um, and really kind of just focusing on one kind of product and service uh, ultimately helped us. So uh, we'd done a prep, a prep conversation, and we talked a little bit about what you majored in and sort of how that uh, helped you or gave you some sense of what you were interested in or not. Maybe if you guys want to talk a little bit about um, your path at UT as a major or how you came upon RTF and advertising. Oh, first. Okay. Uh, so I think I started as a comp sci major, and then I decided immediately I didn't want to do that, and then I started to go to RTF. Uh, and then I think uh, probably pressure from my dad wanted me to go to like business school, and I wanted to do art, and I think that's how I found advertising. It was sort of the intersection of art and business. Um, uh, I initially looked at the creative uh, sequence, um, and then I found an opportunity to add the thing, I think it was within, within the media 
uh, sequence called interactive, and it was sort of new media websites. What are all you know anything that's not you know radio, TV, or film, right? Um, and so uh, at, at the time, back, this is I, know, I guess like 2000, um, it was only 12 people. So I kind of saw it as an opportunity of a real small niche group, uh, internet and you know online advertising and websites and web design was all still pretty new at that point. Um, and so I, I saw it as just a really interesting uh, way to um, kind of just get into the kind of new medium. I had been interested in computers, you know, pretty much. Uh, ever since I got my hand on them. And so also it's sort of, I found web design as sort of the intersection between uh, technology and art as well. Um, and of course, every website's an advertise, <laughs> advertisement. So um, I, I think all the, all the pieces fell, in, uh, fell together right there. So uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, the interactive program. Uh, I became a little bit jaded with the advertising industry, so I didn't actually ever go work for an ad agency. But um, I think everything I learned uh, within advertising uh, because... Ultimately, like I said, you know, websites and you know, there's are ultimately you know the main sales tools for for a lot of businesses, and they represent the online presence for a lot of businesses. So, um, um, I really enjoyed everything I learned there, and it was really nice to have kind of a small, intense group to learn uh, both along with my uh, fellow students as well as the professor. You know, a lot of this was new for him too, so it was it was really interesting. Cool, thanks. So I also started off in CompSci. Um, I did a year of computer science, and throughout that year, I would go to the advisors and the professors, and I'd ask them, this is back in 2000, um, when are you going to start teaching classes about the web and web-based programming? And the answer that I got from everybody was, the internet isn't programming. So I realized, these people don't know what they're talking about, and if I wanted to do something online, I'd have to teach myself anyway. It is entirely a self-taught industry. So I left and I decided to pursue things that I enjoyed. Uh, so I knew that at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time, uh, RTF was one of those things that you had to apply for once and you'd get rejected, then you'd apply for it again and they'd accept you. So while I was waiting to get accepted into RTF, because it's something that I wanted to do, I wanted, you know, I wanted to make movies like everybody on the planet, uh, I also pursued psychology, because I thought psychology was really neat. That was something that I was always drawn to. And I wound up doing uh, RTF focusing on media studies. Uh, and I didn't know it at the time, but that um, combination of psychology and media studies was actually perfect for what I do today. Because psychology is the study of how people communicate on an individual basis, how they uh, empathize, how they emote, how they interact, and how they think and behave. Uh, and media studies is about the broadcasting of messages and how people receive information and how they transmit it. So those two things together are the internet. And I didn't know it, but I was getting a really perfect education for what I would later do. Uh, totally unintentionally, I wish I could claim that like there was some master plan. It was just two things that I really loved. Uh, but of course, I may just be ascribing meaning to something in retrospect. Um, but uh, that's how I wound up doing it. And then after graduating, uh, I mentioned that it was a self-taught industry. There are very few schools even today that teach, uh, any, that have a degree in web design or development. Uh, that's starting to change over the past five to 10 years. I've, I've seen some programs pop up here and there. But for the most part, people are taught, they teach themselves or they attend vocational schools like Code Academy or um, what are some of the other ones that are really big? Iron Yard. Iron Yard and stuff like that. So if that's something that you're interested in doing, uh, if you're not able to find classes here at UT, and I think there are a few now, there's one in journalism taught by 
Professor Quigley uh, on app development, which seems really interesting, and I know there are a handful of others. But if you're interested in that, you'll probably need to look outside of the university system for the really hands-on programming stuff. So the people that work with you, uh, and it sounds like you both as well, how many of them took classes in this versus you know just sort of figured it out on their own on the job or other ways of learning? Um, I feel like I have a lot of bad news for everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, we don't require a bachelor's degree. We don't even require a high school education. Um, <laughs> this industry is entire, like totally self-taught. I really mean that. And very, um, it's, it's, it's a meritocracy. So the work that you do speaks for itself. Your portfolio speaks for itself. Uh, we've, I don't know how many companies out there say like, you know, bachelor is required, master is preferred. Mm -mm, we don't even list it. Uh, and that's because this industry, quite frankly, I don't think the university system can keep up with how quickly this industry changes. Uh, this industry changes in a matter of months and weeks, not years and decades. So the technologies that are being taught right now at a university, by the time you graduate, even if it's a year from now, old. So you'll have to stay ahead uh, on your own. So uh, to riff on something you were saying earlier, um, one thing that, and so I think maybe we're speaking for strictly like web designers and web developers or programmers because it is self-taught. I think one thing that is kind of interesting is um, in looking at like user experience as sort of a um, position where you're thinking about how users engage with, with your product and you're thinking about, you're trying to get into their heads and uh, think about how they are going to use the product and, you know, um, not just trying to predict it, but also testing it. So putting it in front of them, observing them, giving them prompts, watching them. And um, we've seen that people that have backgrounds or in psychology or have studied psychology um, <laughs> like have landed in this industry, and it makes total sense. So I, I would say maybe that's one um, job Like as we start to build out more of our user experience uh, department um, within our company. We, that is something we, we may not require, that, but, but we may give preference to people who have um, uh, some kind of background in, in that. Do you mind if I hop in for a moment? Oh, go for so, it. Um, it's interesting when you think about the practical applications of a degree. I, I want to emphasize that my time at UT is like some of the most valuable time and most fun I ever had ever. Uh, totally worth it every moment. Um, it's just that the working world is very different. Uh, case in point, at my psychology graduation, the speaker was this guy who um, started off with one of those little psychological, well, it wasn't even a psychological trick, it was a math trick. One of those, like, pick any letter of the alphabet, then subtract three, and then think of an animal that starts with that letter, and then, like, everybody's thinking of an elephant, and everybody goes, wow. <laughs> um, so he did that, and then he explained that his job in psychology, his practical application of psychology, and he was a doctor, was he was hired by ABC Television to interview all of the applicants for Survivor and to deliberately create an environment in which they would fight. So you'd never think that like psychology does that, but like that's a practical application of what some people argue is a soft science and some people argue is a pseudoscience. Um, and I say that as somebody who loves psychology. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about like what it actually takes to build a website. Does anybody here have even the faintest clue how you build a website? A few of you? Okay, so like code and you know graphics and maybe CSS, JavaScript, HTML, things like that, right? So our job, like to really like 
zoom all the way out and think about what, we're, what we do on a daily basis. When we engage with one of our, our clients, when they approach us and they say, uh, I want you to build a website for whatever reason, my magazine, my, um, my university, my product, my app, whatever it is, we start by thinking about what are their business goals? Like, why do they want a website? What are they trying to do with it? And there are fundamentally two kinds of websites. There are uh, informational websites where their goal is content or marketing. So they could be content that, that is advertising focused or that they're trying to sell you, or they're trying to make you aware of a product. That's the first kind, so informational. The second is transactional. So you have some sites that do a task that's like a tool that you use for something, like an online calculator of something, or Amazon.com. The transaction there is financial. You are giving them money so that you get a good in return. That's kind of it. So first we have to understand why somebody wants a website. Why do they want to invest a whole bunch of time and money into making a website? Is it because they want to increase advertising revenue? Do they want to increase sales? Do they have a new product that they need to launch? Are they trying to recruit if they're a nonprofit? Are they trying to get more donors? Are they trying to win grants? Like what's the reason for them needing a website? So we start there. Then we start thinking about the people that they're trying to reach out to. So, okay, they're a business trying to do something, and they have customers in some sense. Even if they're a nonprofit, their customers are donors or the people they're trying to serve. We then have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people, not just that are performing the business, but that are receiving the services, that are the visitors to the site. What do they want out of the site? When they arrive there, what are they trying to do? What are their pain points? Um, how many people arrive at a, well, we've all had this experience. Put yourself in the, in the position of when you have been frantically looking for information online, right? Uh, you're worried that um, you've missed, I don't know, ad drop, right? So, or whatever it's called. What's the thing where it's like the last day we can drop a class? <laughs> Done that before. Uh, you're, you're like, did I miss that date? And you're trying to find out what that date is, right? So you go to utexas.edu or you look at the calendar or there's some kind of a tool, right? You're freaking out at that moment. So you're agitated. Your judgment is impaired. You're trying to navigate this site, and you're getting frustrated very quickly because you can't find it. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of people like that to think, what's the number one reason why somebody goes to utexas.edu? Is it because they want to go to UT? Probably not, right? But that's what everybody in the marketing department at UT will say. They're like, oh, utexas.edu, that's our showcase for admissions. Like, that's we want to get people. No. You are going to utexas.edu. You're already students. They already have your money. You're trying to perform a function, or you're trying to get information. So we turn a lot of that thinking on its head. Uh, then we do design, uh, and there's bits of branding in that. There's bits of marketing, like you know what colors work well, or the branding guidelines. Then we build it. That's the coding process. Uh, and I'm going to totally conveniently skip over that very important piece of things. Um, and then we have to help with the findability of the site. So is the content good? Is it performing what we thought it would perform? Is it serving the task we thought it would serve? What's the data that we can gather to back that up? We believe very much in data-driven design, so we're looking at traffic metrics on the site. How many people arrive at the site? Do they get to where they need to be? We can try doing surveys. We can try doing user testing. Uh, there are all these things that we do to make sure that this thing that we've built is actually successful in achieving the goals that we established at the very beginning of the project. And then we iterate from there. So a website is never a thing that's done. It's a thing that you're constantly building on and improving. A website is more like a television channel, not an episode of a tele television program. It's a whole business unto itself with people running it and changing it and having you know turnover and all of that stuff. 
That's incredibly helpful. And it was okay. leading right into, you know, where, yeah. where I kind of wanted to take us next, which is sort of, so how has your company's mission kind of evolved? You, you mentioned some of the primary objectives you have now. Um, and do you, what's the size and divisions of your company? Like how many people work there? What, what are the different areas that people cover? Sure, so I think we're about 25 people now. Um, so we're the two partners uh, below us. We have uh, a team of directors. So we have a director of um, business development. Not yet. Oh. <laughs> That's me right now. That's one of the fun things about agency life is that everybody has all kinds of titles, like a weird king from Spain or something. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, director of projects, so project management, what are the processes, like how do projects actually get done and how do teams get built and all the kind of processes and client communication channels uh, get sorted out. Uh, I'm actually also a director, so creative director, so I manage our creative team. I'm involved in creative aspect of sales, so making sure that our pitch decks look good making sure that our creative approach to a project appeals to the client. It's often, it doesn't, we, we like to believe that, you know, it, a, a website being coded really well and being really technical and great is going to really sell it. But more often than not, uh, unless you're talking to like the CTO, um, they really care about uh, what are all the bells and whistles and how's it going to look and how's it, you know, going to integrate with other, you know, social platforms and other uh, tools. Um, um, and then we have our uh, director of technology. So as primarily a technology company building websites, you know, he kind of uh, decides what software we're going to use, uh, making sure that all the developer and their developer team are using best practices. Um, let me see any directors. Director of projects. So project management is really important. Um, the projects that we work on have budgets that range from ideally about 100000 to a $1 million. So these are projects that require a huge team for six to 18 months. And it often takes us one to two years just to sell a project of that size. So there's about a one to two year cycle of making contact with a potential client, getting to know them, getting to understand their business. And then suddenly, well, not suddenly, then after many, many, many months, they have a project come up. And they're like, oh, well, I know these people. I'm going to go talk to them. And then there's a whole bidding war. and then. Finally, we start the, the project, and that's project management is the thing that makes all of that happen. Um, should I even attempt to use like cheesy filmmaking metaphors here? Is that going to be helpful? Or, okay. So the project manager is like the director. The project manager has a vision for how the project needs to um, uh, uh, be completed. Um, they're the ones that, that are hiring. Uh, not hiring, but kind of overseeing um, and coordinating everybody else on the team. Coordinating is the right word. Uh, everybody else on the team. So, you know, you have the lighting people and you have the sound people and you have the cinematographer and all of that. Um, those would be the developers, the front end developer, the UX strategist, all of these people that are doing different parts of the project. And they are all relevant at different stages. So, like in filmmaking, where you have a casting call, right? You're trying to figure out actors, you have script writing and rewrites and all of that. Uh, then you have production, and then you have post-production. I wouldn't say there's a similar uh, flow to making a website, but a website is divided into stages like that. There's discovery, which is like writing the script. Like, what are we going to do? You've got this money, and you have goals that you need to achieve. How are we actually going to do that? So discovery helps us understand how big is this project really going to be, where are the problems, um, who's going to be stepping in at various stages. Then we have design, which is where Aaron focuses. So. Uh, uh, the look and feel, um, 
what will the components of a page be? Like, I'm sure you've all realized at this point that websites have a certain grammar to them, where there's like, oh, the logo goes in the upper left-hand corner, and there's usually a search box in the upper right-hand corner, and there's a menu across the top more often than not. Uh, that grammar exists because um, people have been trained to use websites that way, so why try to untrain them, right? Uh, you want to make things easy for people. Uh, so that's the design phase, and you're thinking about psychology a lot. And then, you could also be interviewing users to find out if you're doing a, a big site redesign, and you could understand what are, you actually talk to users and understand what are their pain points, or have them go through a task and really understand. Okay, this thing is not working at all. Let's definitely not redo that in the new website. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. I think. Uh, so, how do you go about procuring clients, or what's the process like in terms of? If you can talk about sure, that's my job. <laughs> Guess what? I'm the talker. Um, so I'm the sale. I'm one of the salespeople. Um, so my background is, uh, as I mentioned, RTF. So I have a lot of um, creative writing, design, and some uh, development, meaning programming experience. Uh, how do we find clients? Um, uh, this is information like competitors would love to know all of this. Uh, can edit this out. No, that's that's. I'm joking. We're we all. It's everybody does the same thing. Um, so, uh, I could talk forever about sales, and um, it would be very businessy. And I, it's something I, I really have come to love. Surprisingly, I didn't think I would be like into sales. Um, what I like about it is, I'm the first person that a client gets to meet, and and they tell me their problems. Like, they're they're coming to us because. Their current website doesn't work well, or their whole web team just left, or they're incompetent, or you know they need to change direction or something. So there's some there's a big thing at stake, and they unload all of that on me, and I help them figure out like first steps: is this something we can even help you with? Is this even a good idea for you to embark on? Um, I often tell people when they come to us saying like I need a website, I've got a great idea for an app, and it's a startup, and I just need a somebody to help me out with a. Uh, you know, a proof of concept, and if you can work on spec, then I'll give you like sweat equity in the business. Like, no, I work for money. Like, go away. Uh, so, first of all, the big lesson in the creative world: don't do anything for free ever, right? Unless you love it, unless it's for you. Uh, everybody, especially in the creative industry, in the technical industry, you can't quite get away with it. How many people here have done an internship for free at some point at UT? Oh, boo! That's actually illegal. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's illegal. Uh, laws are changing to fix that once and for all. I did an unpaid internship at KLBJ. I was Dudley and Bob's like gopher boy uh, from 5.30 AM until 10.30 AM. They made me do terrible things. Uh, and I did all that for free. What? For class credit. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> so uh, so never do anything for free. And, and our, it's very rare now that clients ask us to, to do things like that. But in the creative world, people don't appreciate creative work. They don't treat it like work. They treat it like art, like it's fun. Um, but it is a, it, it's a, a practice that you have. It's something that you've honed over years and requires a lot of um, knowledge and, and skill. Uh, so don't please help us in not perpetuating the, econ the free economy of creative work because those who do participate in it reinforce its existence. So please don't do that. So you might be thinking in your head there might be there's a catch twenty two happening right now. It's like okay, well if I can't do work for free, but no one wants to pay me for work because I don't have any work to show my portfolio, you know how am I gonna, ever going to get a job? So uh, you can work for cheap. 
but don't work for free. That's 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 maybe how I put it. And you know, cheap can be uh, an advantage, uh, or you know, can be a, a differentiator. Yeah. Because once once you set your price, and this is the thing in sales, and this applies to everybody in life, like this is a life lesson. Once you set your price, that's your price. Like you agree to do work for free with somebody, that's how much they think of that work. They think it's free. That's how valuable it is to them. So never set your bar that low. The first website, paid website, because we made that mistake, the first paid website we ever made was a um, just a blog for, um, it was actually kind of an interesting website. It was a blog for gay Methodists to tell stories about coming out. And this guy had 300 bucks. And we thought, yeah, 300 bucks like almost pays the rent, kind of. Pays for two weeks of rent in our awful East Old Torf apartment. Um, so we were thrilled just to have paid work. But that's an example of working for cheap, but not for free. So at that point, like he, he wouldn't come back to us. He never did. He never took advantage of us or anything. But he wouldn't have come back to us and said, like, well, you know, I need all of these fixes. Can you just do this or that? And that's easy, right? You know, that's the kind of thing you hear a lot in the creative and, and technical industries. That's easy, right? Um, it's not. And uh, you have to pay people for their work. It's just the right, it's the right thing to do. Um, so finding, uh, finding work. How did we wind up um, doing work with NBC and CNN? And I think that's kind of where you're going with this. How did we start making a $300 WordPress blog and uh, work on million dollar projects now with all these big clients? Um, so a couple of things. Um, one is we got involved in a specific skill at an early stage. So there was, I mentioned this CMS, this content management system called Drupal. Content management system is a piece of software you install on a server that gives you websites. You put your content on it. How many people here like have like a Tumblr blog or something, right? You've used something like that. The kids, I'm sure the kids don't use Tumblr these days. What's the cool thing? Not Tumblr, right? I don't know. What's the cool thing? <laughs> Does like Yik Yak have a blog? I don't know. What's the, I did the Yik Yak joke. I want to tell a Yik Yak story. Uh, so I, <laughs> Uh, I did a I did a talk at um, uh, at a conference a few days ago about the history of the travesty and, and college humor publications. And in doing so, I had to interview uh, Rohit and Xavier, who are your SG president and vice president, right? So they were on the travesty staff, uh, and I asked them about like how did you actually get elected? That's kind of crazy. Uh, and they said, well, you know, social media and this other thing, and like, and we got really big on Yik Yak. And I did the old man thing, and I said TikTok. <laughs> and they're like, no, yik yak. And then like long pause. And then I said, just tell me what it is. Because like clearly I don't know. And he's like, I didn't want to offend you. Um, that's how I relate to you. Uh, so <laughs> uh, big projects. Um, we got involved in a specific time, in an early time with a specific project. Uh, specializing is a really great way to beat your competition. Because uh, we go up against big companies like massive consulting firms of hundreds of thousands of people, the Deloitte's and the IBM's and the you know, PWC's and all these big, uh, Anderson, what's the other one? There's a dozen of them. Um, McKinsey's and all of that. Uh, you go up against them and you win by doing something very specific and very special and cutting edge. And from there, you can build a practice. So it's all portfolio-based work, right? So number two is you do one project, and that leads to the next project. So doing one thing, I have a friend who uh, I knew from the travesty who graduated from RTF here. His name is Bradley Jackson. He 
uh, wrote a movie that was released not too long ago, originally called Intramural, now called Balls Out. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of it or seen it, but he um, it's a great movie. Don't let the awful name that the marketing company slapped on it ruin it for you. You should go see Balls Out and ignore the name. Uh, he he started, like, how did, how did he become a filmmaker? He started because he would do shorts and then win a competition, win a little bit of prize money, invest that prize money in the next movie, do something really cool there, win a festival or two, invest that money in the next one, and he just kept rolling it forward. And now he's working on major motion pictures, which is just like incredible. That's exactly what we did, but with websites. You take that first thing that you do, do a really good job. Don't do it for free, but do it for cheap. Uh, specialize in something that's really unique. Find what you're really passionate about and go after that. And from there, you can start to build a team. So we started in design. We're not technical people, fundamentally. We started in design, but we built a technical team. Uh, and having a strongly technical team is also what gave us part of our edge. And now we're going back into doing more design and business level consulting. Yeah. <clears throat> so we also latched onto the open source community without going into all the details there. Um, it is just a more open, less competitive side of the industry where code is free and um, there's just a really great culture of sharing. And so anytime you do great work, you know, word of mouth has got us a lot of business because you do, you know, and that's probably the number one advice I give is just do good work because the word, the, you know, you do really great work for somebody, they're going to talk about you to inside their company, which you could get more work to them. They're going to talk to their friends and colleagues. They could do end up doing case studies about your project. So often when we were really proud of a project, we'll go to the client like, hey, that was a really great site that we launched for you. This conference is coming out. What if we like get together and do a talk together about the website? And it makes them look good. It makes us look good. You know, It gives us credibility because the client is there with us and they're saying how great we are <laughs> instead of just... <laughs> We'll, we'll talk about how great we are all the time, but you know the client will say it. You know that, that's even better. Um, so it's more authentic coming from it. Yeah. So you know, talking at conferences, writing blog posts, blog, blog posts, doing uh, uh, case studies on the website. Um, I don't know. It, that that has helped us, and, and I think be, because of the industry that we're in um, and the types of conferences that we go to, it really is all about sharing, um, and, and that that hasn't hurt as well. So uh, maybe you can talk a little more about how you do try to pitch yourself as standing out from these huge companies, right? And and related to that, maybe you can talk a little bit about a little more about some of your clients, who some of your clients are, and you know what distinguishes doing the Tonight Show from something for a non-media type of client. Ooh. Um, okay, so I'll I'll continue the thought on sales. Yeah, I'll continue the thought on sales. How do we pitch ourselves to stand out? Uh, okay, so you ask anybody in the world this question, like, let's say you are doing something very similar to somebody else and you have to compete against them. How do you compete? Chances are that person is going to say, oh, well, we just do it better. That's not what we call in the sales world a differentiator. That's doing quality, believe it or not, doesn't actually make you different than somebody else. Uh, because quality is very subjective and nobody's necessarily going to believe you up front. If you have a portfolio that demonstrates that, if you have a reputation that demonstrates that, then it speaks for itself. You don't need to say it. Uh, instead, you need, to, um, you need to think really hard about what you're good at. You need to do research on yourself and ask people that you've worked with, like, what did you like about the work that I did? What do you think was special about the work that I did for you? 
So we ask our clients that as we wrap up projects. Uh, we do kind of like a, a, like a post-launch PR thing with them because you know, this is work that we put hundreds or thousands of hours into. They put hundreds and thousands of hours and a lot of money into it as well. And we want to, um, uh, we want to go after awards. We want to you know, get their site known and recognized and have them feel really proud of the work that we've all done together. So one of the things that we will ask them is like, what were some of the high points? What were some of the low points? You know, you learn from the low points and you you brag about the high points. So the things that I've found that people say about us uh, is that we just have a different attitude going into the the project. Uh, we're very, um, believe it or not, I know it probably doesn't sound like this. We're actually quite humble and we're very giving with our time. Uh, there are other companies out there, like web companies, that just behave like crazy ad agencies, right? They will have a huge ego and they they do a big sales pitch and you know, they're all about whining and dining and things like that. Um, that's the world that we have to play in, but that's not our attitude. And I think a lot of people really appreciate the um, the humility and the thoughtfulness that we bring to a project. That's something that I've heard quite a bit of. Uh, we really focus on value, and value is a tricky thing to establish because now you have to put yourself in the mind of a buyer. So when you've made, like think of the last big purchase you made, whether it was a vacation or a car or a laptop or something, like what, or whatever big means to you, right? Um, think about like what you were weighing in that decision. So were you thinking about the long-term use or were you thinking of the short-term gain? Were you thinking about uh, resale value? Were you thinking about experience versus a good? So like, well, I can go on a trip or I can get you know, this used car. If that's a decision you were making, one is an experience, the other is a mode of transit uh, and is a good. Uh, these are the things that our clients think about in the sales process and we have to understand where they're coming from. So we often have to think really deeply about what is it they're looking for? What do they want to get out of this? And then express, if, if we do, in fact, have the right value for them, express how we have that value and how that's going to work. Um, so value is not simply what you get for a set amount of money. It's what you get, but it's also the experience of working with those people. Like, did it feel like you got a lot out of it? Did you feel like it was a good relationship? Do you feel like this is a relationship that will grow? Or was this like, we did the website, we're done, see you later, you know, good luck? Uh, I'm sure this can apply to, to whatever industries you work in in the future. Um, but really understanding what value means to people, especially if you go into freelancing or start your own business or whatever, you're going to have to think really deeply about that. Um, and don't be afraid to, I mentioned earlier, you know, ask people, it doesn't have to be clients, but ask other people, what is it about me that you like, that you think is valuable? What about my work do you in particular like that you, that you think is different? Uh, and what do I need to work on? What do I need to be better at? And having that cycle of feedback is, is really important and being open to that and then actually doing something about it at the end. That's good. And I'll go back to my second part of the multi-pronged question. Um, clients that you have and the difference between designing a website and developing a strategy for a media client versus a non-media client, if you can kind of talk about that a little bit. You want to take that one? Start. <laughs> um, I would say with smaller clients, you t generally get more freedom. They, um, 
if they're a nonprofit or a university and they see that you've worked with NBC and Entertainment Weekly and uh, The Economist, um, they might just be glad that they get the opportunity to work with you. Or, uh, but more often than not, they have a smaller team. They are not going to have an internal team on, on their own. That's why they're and they're hiring you to do that. Um, you know, we're, they hire us because we're the ex experts. So, um, but that's not to say that bigger. I mean, we're with, working with a very large client right now, and they're very much interested in like listening to us and wanting us to drive kind of their digital strategy. Um, so I can, it, it kind of depends on, on the makeup of their team. Um, but yeah, more often than not, I'd say you have more freedom. You have more creative freedom to like mess with their uh, design or their brand. Um, so a lot of times, their web, for smaller uh, companies, their website is their only uh, brand. Um, they can also be harder to work with sometimes because they have less money and smaller budget. Or like, you know, this budget that they give you uh, is uh, a bigger piece of their larger budget that they're given. So that like they're like really holding on tight to uh, all the details of the project and can really be... Um, you know, making sure you know that uh, they're you know, counting all the nickels and dimes that are being charged. Um, what, what would you say about larger clients? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right in that smaller clients give you more freedom because they um, they tend to rely on on us more. Uh, they are um, more what we call cost conscious because they have less money. Uh, so they, you know, they are more likely to look at an invoice and pick apart the details in a big company where, you know, that's just part of a budget that they have in a year and like, so what, right? whatever, uh, big companies, you don't get quite as much freedom because there's a lot of bureaucracy and they usually have in-house design teams and you got to work with branding and, you know, then they have their own like quality assurance team and, you know, they're nitpicking things. And so there's a lot more, um, there are more hoops to jump through with big companies, but also you're making your work is making a bigger impact generally, uh, and also has a, a bigger reach. I like to really find the the mix of the two, where you can have a really big impact on an organization, and then that Im that organization then in turn has a big impact on the world. And I find that we do um, our most valuable work, and I mean valuable in the sense of changing the world uh, through nonprofits and through education. Because um, media, media is challenging and like in a good way, and really interesting. And there are millions of people that go to these sites. And you know, I mean, we did part of CNN.com. That's a huge deal. Uh, but like CNN.com, is it actually you know point me to where that's changing, say, women's lives in sub-Saharan Africa? No, that's a different client that does that. Like that's like the feeling of impact is is different. And so we like to have a mix of big clients, big names, big brands that are doing big things in a commercial sense, but then also smaller nonprofits or educational um, institutions that might be more difficult from a project management or client management perspective, uh, but are doing real good and real tangible things in the world that actually alter people's lives in meaningful ways. And, and that's where I think we get a lot of uh, value out of, out of what we do. Uh, you mentioned something about cost. Um, there's a really interesting concept that I was introduced to when I started getting into software that I think is like a good um, life lesson. And I think that you'll find in any creative process that, that this happens. So it's a, pro it's, a, it's a phenomenon known as bike shedding. Has anybody ever heard of bike shedding before? Okay. So the idea behind bike shedding is imagine you are, um, you're a large, uh, let's say you're the Texas legislature. 
Okay, so you're a member of the Texas legislature and you're sitting there in the Capitol building and um, somebody walks in there and says, okay, here's the deal. We need to build a nuclear power plant and it's going to cost $10 billion. Uh, and everybody kind of looks around and they're like, that seems about right, I guess. I mean, it's a nuclear power plant. It's complex. Does anybody here know anything about like nuclear physics and power? And like, nope. Uh, okay, great. Go build that, right? Then the next person walks in and says, hey, I need $200 for a bike shed. Everybody in the room is going to go, you can do a bike shed for 100 bucks. I know somebody does it for 50 Like, what color is it going to be? How many bikes are going to be in there, right? Is it a, is it a, a, what kind of a door? Will it be a door on the side, a door on the front? You know, what, this idea that if a problem is small enough and you can wrap your head around it, you will argue it to death, is bike shedding. But if the problem is big and complicated and abstract, like nuclear power plant, nobody's asking questions about, like, how many parking spaces will there be? And what color are you going to paint the cooling towers, right? Nobody cares. But in the world, and you'll find this in any creative project, if you start to give people input on really specific things, then they'll suddenly feel like, um, I can wrap my head around that, and therefore I have opinions. But if they can't wrap their head around it, they're like, whatever you say, you're the expert, right? Just a little aside, it's something that I think you'll find in, in any kind of creative or technical endeavor you undertake. Or higher education setting. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So one question I have for you is about being in Austin, right? So how much does being here matter to your company, your identity? Do you, or are you traveling a lot to meet with clients? How does that work? I think it's definitely been an advantage. Um, Austin's a cool city. It's really, really, it's been like the fastest growing city in the last five years. Um, I would say uh, <laughs> on a kind of looser level, it makes us look cool, you know? Um, <laughs> like we're, we're like kind of a small boutique agency and we're in Austin and we're in a cool city and, you know, cool things happen here like music festivals and South by Southwest. Um, but uh, very few of our clients are in Austin or in Texas. We've done some work with, obviously when we started, we did that, but, you know, as our, uh, reach has grown. Um, it, it's expanded. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we have clients that come visit us uh, sometimes, and definitely we use South by Southwest as an advantage, and that's actually one of the great times of the year where they are all already in town. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have to spend any of our travel budget to go meet with them because they're already in town. Um, so we do a fair amount of traveling to go to them, whether it's in the Midwest or in California or New York or wherever they are. Mm-hmm. Um. Again, I kind of feel like the naysayer sometimes. Uh, Austin has, uh, has totally, like, the, the culture. I mean, if it wasn't for UT, our company wouldn't exist. If it wasn't for the Travis our company wouldn't exist. Um, we owe a lot to Austin. It's really great. But um, it's now uh, in the world of, of web and technology companies and things like that, um, the explosion of startups and venture capital money and all of this stuff that's flooded into Austin makes it very hard to hire here. It's very expensive to hire, especially programmers, in in Austin. So we made a deliberate decision about three years ago to become a distributed company, meaning that we have people all over the country, and for a while we had somebody in uh, Germany as well. Uh, that's a whole other conversation, but it's um, I feel like that is has really changed our business um, for the good. It's made it a lot easier to hire. It's made it overall cheaper to hire. Uh, Austin commands a really high salary, and, and um, I mean, at this point, we have an office, but I don't know if we're going to have one in a year. I mean, we kind of don't need it. We do everything virtually. 
uh, through video chat and chat rooms and email, and that's how we do our work. And it's kind of a new way of doing work that's um, interesting, which is a, probably a whole other class. Uh, but it's increasingly common in our industry and is probably the way that a lot of businesses are going to restructure in the next in, within our generation, quite frankly. So don't be surprised if right out of school you start working at a distributed company and you work from home for like years. Uh, that's increasingly common. So do you think um, that there are certain cities besides Austin where, you know, obviously Silicon Valley and that sort of thing, but what are the cities that perhaps that you think there's a concentration of companies like yours? And uh, in Austin, are, who would you see as your competitors, perhaps? Ooh, um, I'm going to say something really cocky. <laughs> we don't have any competition in Austin. Um, that's not totally fair. Uh, there, there are uh, companies that work in our space and do work similar to us and work with, um, there isn't a lot of overlapping clients. So when, when people say like companies like yours or the work that you do, the way we interpret that is making websites using open source software, which is a very niche kind of thing. There are companies here in town that um, do stuff very similar to what we do, but they tend to focus on other industries or other kinds of products. So when I say we don't really have competition, it's not because I'm saying nobody can compete with us. I'm saying that we're all specialized in certain ways that we actually very rarely compete head-to-head, -head, which is part of that interesting world of the web where everybody needs a website, so everybody needs to hire a company to help them. Um, there, we do have, though, there are companies out there that I would consider competition, and um, they tend to either be also distributed, so there is no city exactly where they're located, uh, a lot of people, I think, would point to cities like New York and Silicon Valley and places like that. Um, but there are some surprises, actually. Uh, I think it has less to do with the size of the city or the location of the city and much more to do with the nature of the city. So uh, Portland, um, there are parts of L.A. that uh, have a lot of this kind of thing happening. There are places like Sioux City uh, or Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, like if they're at Minneapolis, is actually Minneapolis has more designers like per capita than any other city in the country, including uh, New York. Now, designer is a broad term, but um, uh, people who describe themselves as designer. So it, it, think about like a certain character of a city, and that's where you'll find organizations like ours, like Kansas City. Um, uh, Google Fiber launched there, for example. I think it was was it Oklahoma City, yeah, Kansas City. So, like, not to get, like, political, but kind of like young university progressive towns have a lot of creative talent. Um, maybe we can shift gears a little bit to talk about your views on the industry you're working. Like, how would you describe the industry you're in? What do you think are uh, some key issues that are being dealt with in the business that you're working in? I know that... Uh, Students in my class got emails of a couple of articles from Aaron pertaining to this, and maybe we can kind of build off that. Yeah, so maybe something we may not have said yet, but you know, besides the kind of verticals we work in that we said, like nonprofit education, <clears throat> uh, media, uh, one thing we really kind of, that like the blanket term we use is like publishing. So sites that publish. So it's not just a website for a dentist or a real estate agent that is a couple of pages. It's uh, large websites and we define, you know, our tagline is we make big websites, and we define big by either lots of people come to that website 
uh, they either have a large editorial team that is publishing content. So, you know, uh, for university websites, there's lots and lots of pages, maybe not, you know, and then obviously there's lots of departments, but, you know, for uh, a, publication, a publication like Entertainment Weekly, they obviously have a team of editors and writers and, um, you know, we are big, because we came from kind of a publishing background, we're very interested in building those tools. That, and right now, is, I think it's a very exciting time um, with you know people trying to figure out well you know uh, do you really need to make your front page of your website like the destination for people when really the way they're getting into your website is through uh, an article that's shared you know on Twitter or Facebook or some other social media like they're landing on that article and so now that one of the big problems people are trying to solve right now is like how do you keep them on your website it's like once they've read that article and they scroll down to the bottom or have skimmed down to the bottom um, you know do you show them related content do you like prompt them to share this on social media like what are the ways that you keep them on that website? Um, advertising is another really big one. You know, when iOS 9 came out uh, for, for iPhones, they allow ad blocking now. So you were able to block ads on, you know, Chrome or Firefox or whatever browser you're using. But for some on mobile and all these advertisers are like you're trying to freak out because, you know, how do you, when you give away your content for free, the only way you pay for it is through advertising. And if you're blocking those ads, you're not getting paid, and the advertisers are going to go away, and there's not going to be a publication anymore. So um, that's and that's still something very new because I think you know it just happened in, in September. So um, you know, uh, and then Apple came right back and was like, "Oh well, we'll allow blocking ads, but then we'll create this thing called Apple News that you can publish on, uh, but we'll allow ads there, and we'll take a thirty percent cut." You know, very smart Apple. Um, so and Facebook wants your content and they won't give you any opportunity to advertise. They will advertise your content. Uh, advertise, like making, monetizing content is like a, an actual crisis right now. Like no joke. Companies are going out of business left and right. Newspapers are folding. Television stations, you know, you name it. Um, how do you make money with content now? The, the, this whole thing started in 1993 uh, when there was the web, when it was first introduced um, the internet had existed since the 40s, but the web as we know it, web pages, that was all invented in 1993. Within just a few years, all these publishing companies were like, well, um, you know, we've got this great magazine or newspaper or whatever. We want people to get our magazine and newspaper. Let's kind of experiment with putting things on this brand new information superhighway www thing, right? So they did that, and then they kind of made this mistake of setting the tone for all content that came after that on the internet, um, that it should be free, free first. And we all feel that way about content. Like, how many times have you gotten to a paywall and you're like, and you just don't read it, right? <laughs> Everybody here does that all the time. You get annoyed when there's a paywall and you're not paying for your content, right? But you buy a textbook, but you buy a book on a Kindle or, you know, on your iPad or whatever, right? You do that, but you won't pay for a website. You won't pay, you know, $3 a month for a website that you would want to read. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I do the same thing. I'm not blaming you. It's like we're in this weird, like, psychological moment as a, as a culture. So um, content creators aren't getting paid. That's the music industry, the film industry, um, the uh, uh, publishing, like text and photography and things like that, especially hard hit. So you have to look now at how are these places going to make money if not only are people expecting free, so therefore it's ad-driven, and now they're ad blockers, and social media outlets like Facebook are trying to even take that away from you. Uh, how are you going to make money on the internet? I don't have an answer, but that's what, we, that's what all of our clients are absolutely 
freaking out about. They are going to go out of business if they don't solve this. Like, huge magazines and brands are going to fold in the next few years if they don't figure this out, which is really sad. On the bright side, <laughs> uh, think about the music industry. So I don't know. I'm doing that whole like old man thing again. Um, I don't know how many of you are around for Napster, but Napster was the thing that like ruined it all for everybody. Um, so when music, when somebody invented a music, what's called a codec, a file codec, um, as in encode, decode, uh, that could compress a song to something that could be downloaded on a 28.8 kbps modem in less than half an hour, as soon as that technology existed, people were trading music for free illegally. And it hasn't stopped since, Right. So the music industry was like, well, they, in the early, in the late 90s, early 2000s even, like revenue for music was just like in the toilet. Nobody was buying albums. Uh, Streaming services didn't exist because people didn't have a lot of like high bandwidth connections. So the music industry, like they did this whole thing where they're like, well, we're going to like put all this incredible encryption on all the CDs and that became a whole political thing and turns out there was spyware in that and... So the music industry, how did they react eventually? How does the music industry still to this day thrive? Any ideas? Because they fixed it. They stream, but they get pennies, fractions of pennies, thousandths of pennies per listen, which is why Taylor Swift didn't put her album on Spotify. Good guess, but not the right answer. Merchandising. And? And Touring. Merchandising and touring. So you look at these like... How do big pop artists survive when all their music is being stolen, and I mean all of it, or they're getting paid thousandths of pennies per listen on Spotify, which is also screwing them? They do tours, and they make millions and millions of dollars. Events, experiences, right? Not goods, not the tangible good of a CD, but an experience. So I'm technically a millennial uh, by like six months or something, and um, so that tells you just how off that whole millennial thing is. I'm 33. Uh, the so we are all except Aaron here is not. I won't speak for. I have no idea. I don't want to make any assumptions. Um, so <laughs> you are clearly millennial. Um, so uh, one of the things that people blame us for is like, oh, you just want like experiences, right? Like you're you're not interested in stuff. You're interested in doing things. Well, I think that's actually really cool, and that's how these entities these content production places are going to survive in the future is that you have to take this thing that you're making and you have to create an experience around it that people find valuable and therefore would pay for. So how does the film industry do something like this? How does uh, the publishing industry do this? Your very own Daily Texan. Um, I happen to serve on the board of Texas Student Media and none of this is you know like secret information. It's all publicly out there. Their advertising revenue is not good, and it's not good and has been down for many years because nobody wants to buy ads in uh, print publications, or at least that demand is drastically reduced. So now they're focusing on creating events. So the Daily Texan now sponsors or is part of, um, uh, what are they called, uh, tailgating events. I'm like, that's how much I know about sports. What's that thing where they all hang out around a tailgate? Uh, they'll do like tailgating events and, and like all, stuff like that, right? That's how they raise money in order to still continue to print the publication. They're creating experiences. You mentioned what are the other crises in our industry. The other really big one, um, diversity. So the diversity of the people producing all of this stuff, not just making content, but especially in the tech industry, people who make websites. 
You go to our website right now, you click on who we are, you look at our team, bunch of white guys. It's true. It sucks. It's something that we are actively trying to change. We believe very much in deliberate diversity, but it is very hard to hire. And uh, I'd say that the most we can do at this point is um, we're getting involved in groups like Girls Who Code uh, to encourage more um, women and non-white, non-men to, <laughs> to work in this tech industry. It's super, super important. Uh, anybody here familiar with Gamergate? Right? That sucked. That was really awful. You should read about that. Um, that's just one example of like a hundred terrible things that happen, you know, every day on the internet to women and non-white, non-male people. Diversity online is a huge, huge, huge issue. And there, I don't have a solution for it except to, um, deliberately reach out to people at every level to include them in the process and in creative organizations. So I encourage you uh, who are not white men to please join our industry and those of you who are to uh, partner with and hire people who are non-white, uh, non-men. <laughs> That's great. So don't hire us for anything yeah, is what I'm yeah. saying. Never mind. Them. No. Um, <laughs> so one last question before I open it up to the class. Uh, if our students are interested in learning more about what you do and the kind of work you do, what can they read? Uh, are there uh, trade organizations they can learn about? Are there events or conferences that they can find out about? I would say it can get a little bit into the weeds. Uh, one website that I think is re- does a really good job of just covering all aspects of our industry is called A List Apart. And um, if you kind of want to get your finger on the pulse of, like, what's happening in your industry, they do this really great thing as just, like, an intro called, like, the Summer Reading List. I think I pulled one of the articles that I shared with you uh, from, from there. Um, and they kind of just break it down, um, kind of at high-level articles about the industry, and then they'll start to dive into very specific uh, topics. But uh, um, that, that, that's one publication I really enjoy. Um. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, there are a handful of, of design blogs that are really great. One that comes to mind, and um, full disclosure, my wife is the editor, <laughs> is uh, Envision. Um, Envision is a, a, a UX and prototyping tool that we use at our company, and it's a business that helps people make websites. Uh, but they have a really great blog, uh, and the blog talks a lot about design um, and the web industry overall. And they have a really good sampling from all corners of the web. So business, technology, design, everything. As far as events go, the obvious one that's kind of like a cheap answer is South by Southwest Interactive. It's a total zoo. It's a lot of noise. Um, it has low value. But it has a, um, the stuff I like at South by Southwest Interactive is the more like the crossover um, Sessions, so like I don't go to web sessions at South by Interactive because it's like they're doing the like kindergarten version of what we do. Uh, I'm interested in the stuff where they talk about like people who are using video games to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. That's really cool and interesting, and there are implications for what we do in that. So find like the really cool and usual cultural sessions at Interactive, and that's where they talk about how technology and design is being used in a really practical way. Uh, as far as other events, uh, Refresh Austin is sort of the blanket tech uh, meetup. I think they, they meet once a month. They're going to be having a big, if you really want to dive in and meet a bunch of people, uh, all of the different various tech groups from around town, and you know, design groups and tech groups uh, will all come to 
with this Christmas party. I don't think it's happened yet. I think it's either this week or next week. It is pretty much just a Christmas party. Like, I don't think there's any content <laughs> yeah. happening. No, no, no content. But, but it's, it's, like, still, it's like a meet and greet uh, yeah. if you want to, like, uh, you know, if you're looking for a job or you want to just talk to people about it. Like, that's a good time to have beers and very casual setting, play pool. Yeah. Usually, though, they have two speakers. I think they do it once a month, and they have two speakers, and they always pick really interesting topics. And it's free. Uh, I think it's on first Wednesday of every month or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and, and uh, a lot of the local um, meetups actually have their meetups on meetup.com. That's how they usually organize them. A lot of them have their monthly um, meetups at, like, a coffee shop or a grocery store or something like that every month. That's helpful. Thanks. Uh, Kyle is waiting to ask a question. Oh, yeah. So I guess I'm curious. This is the first time we've had somebody outside, like, direct entertainment industry. Um, I'll just use 4K as an example. So you said you don't require a bachelor's degree, you don't require a high school degree. I guess, like, when you're, since it's self-taught, like, when you're looking for a hire, are you looking for somebody that has, like, you just like their potential and you're going to teach them yourself? Or are you looking for somebody that took the initiative on their own to, you know, learn the entire industry and then come to Four Kitchens kind of thing? Uh, great question. I'll answer the technical side of that if you want to talk about the design. Uh, I, I, one thing that made me think about is our, our industry, unlike, I don't know, I'm, it's always evolving. <laughs> like, the thing you know today, next month, there's going to be some hot new tool or design method or something like that. So it's definitely an industry where you, we look for people who are really into self-learning, um, who, I mean, curiosity is one of the number one aspects that we look for in people. So we really look for people who we either have a proven history of you know curiosity or self-teaching, and um, we want to make sure they want to continue that because it definitely is something you have to be passionate about, and you have to be... Um, you know, if you want to kind of stay relevant in this industry, it's something you just have to like constantly be like, you know, watching what the next what what the next thing is. From the the technical side of things, um, the phrase there, the the saying that we have when we're um, recruiting or or hiring um, interviewing candidates is, we're hiring for talent, not skill. Uh, and the difference there is it's kind of semantics, but talent is like the underlying ability. And skill is how it manifests as a specific, like, oh, I know this language, right? We don't really care, you know, if, if to get technical for a moment, you know, we're looking for people who know Drupal, who know PHP, who know JavaScript, who know, you know, Node and things like that. Uh, but any really good developer can learn things because what developers do is they solve unique problems and they figure out how to solve things. They don't necessarily know how to... Um, how to do something like, you know, if I were to walk up to a programmer and say, hey, write out the code right now that does this, right? Okay, great. They can, like, robotically, like, sort of vomit this code onto this whiteboard. Like, I want to know their, their thinking. So what, what we will often do, because code is an um, interesting little fact about programmers. Uh, somebody, I, I remember, mentioned the LSAT over here a, a moment ago. Oh, there you go. Okay, so this is very, very relevant to you. The LSAT is a great predictor for success in the legal industry and in programming because it's all logic. So how do you walk through a problem and, and solve it in, given a defined number of steps? So what we will do in an interview um, with somebody is we will ask them to show an example of their code. Uh, frequently, one cannot take one's work from a previous job and show it to another employer. So we're kind of assuming that they have projects on the side that they do. So that's something we look for, that they are curious and interested in what they do beyond the workday. 
And then they show us that work and we just simply have them walk through it, like line by line. What are you doing here? What are, why did you do this and not this other thing? Like walk us through that process. And we kind of do the same thing. I say similar for design because it's not just like, does your thing look pretty, but like what was the thinking and why you created it in a certain way? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, to, I mean, do you find it to be an exclusionary business? Like, like teach yourself and throw away the manual kind of thing in terms of you, you like having that special skill and nobody else? Ooh. So, um, for some people, it is. That's, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, so, like, I'll just speak to the technical side of things. Um, there are... So in our world of open source, we're like the hippies in the software world. We give it away for free, and we take it for free, and we give back. Like, that's kind of our thing. Now, if we were a different kind of company, if we were working with Microsoft products or Java Oracle products or something like that... Uh, those people are licensed by Microsoft and Oracle. They're, they command very high salaries and high hourly rates because they're like, they've taken a test that somehow proves that they're good at what they do. Uh, they have, that's the learn something, throw away the manual world. And that's totally legit and is a great career and very steady and exists. That's the majority of the comp sci world is that. We're this little sliver, this growing sliver in the corner, um, actually, it's pretty big at this point. I shouldn't even look down. It's, it's open source is very big. Everybody here is using open source right now, and every website you go to is powered by open source in some way. Um, so uh, this very large portion that we work within, but kind of slivered, is uh, uh, these are the people I think that tend to be more thinking on their feet and constantly changing their skills because they'll do this thing for a little while and then sort of jump over here and do a different thing. But the common thread is their underlying talent, which is their ability to learn new stuff. And that above all, like, you know, what's the point of education? I believe that the point of education is to learn how to learn. And that's what you have to do in this industry, like, every day. Cool. Thank you. Make Tim work for his... <laughs> yeah, get a workout, Tim. Um, thank you guys so much for coming real quick. Um, it's good to see um, some Moody College graduates in here, even though it wasn't Moody at the time. Um, given that sort of thought um what was sort of forgoing all the uh, life lessons you've given thus far what sort of one piece of advice you wish you got whenever you graduated from here just something that you were now just be like dang it i wish i knew that <laughs> i know it's there hard i'm sorry lot. there are a lot um any come to mind for uh, you <clears throat> if you want to start a business you should probably know something about it uh, <laughs> um and so, or, or, or partner with someone who knows how to do it. Um, you know, there's just some realities that are going to come around where you've got to pay the bills and you're going to have a budget. And, you know, so I didn't want to go into business, but my, my dad was uh, self-employed and I had that kind of self-employment spirit in me. And, you know, I, I, I'm thankful that he kind of taught me or like, you know, um, forced me to take some like you know economics class or an accounting class and stuff like that because there's some practical things you need to know um, when running a business. You should at least be aware of them, and if you don't really care about them, either partner with someone who is passionate about those kinds of things, those pra more practical things that are like going to keep the lights on and have people's salaries and benefits paid. Um, and then when they get tired of that, or you get tired of it, outsource it. <laughs> so. Um, 
yeah, you definitely don't need to know how to do everything yourself. And something we've definitely learned is, you know, if at the, when the time comes that you are tired of doing something, like someone else out there is going to do it better than you. So just and they'll love doing it, and they'll love doing it, and they'll be they'll pe- let them be passionate about it. And so pay them to do it, and then you can get back to the thing that you're passionate about. Yeah, for me that's that's a that's a big one, and it's. Um... Uh, I guess this is sort of like almost deeply philosophical at this point. Playing directly off of that, um, there's this idea of like time and money. And there are t- there's a certain time in your life when money is more valuable than time. But then there's a moment where that changes. And time is way more valuable than money. Because um, I, I don't really know when that hit for me. But it was it was in the course of doing business here when, you know, I would... Uh, when we first started our company, we had like you know eight hundred dollars in the bank, and three hundred of that had to go to register as an LLC uh, with the state, and then like that's it. We had five hundred dollars to run a business, right? Like how are we going to do that? That's crazy. Um, first of all, one piece of advice is if you want to go into business for yourself, just do it, and then like figure out the rest later. You know, you have no, you have nothing to lose. You really don't. You're broke already, right? Just go do it. Um, but uh, so when we first started the business, it was like all like very like well. Let's price out this exact laptop, and we can shave off $100 here if we buy through this website. And, like, everything we did was, like, saving money like people save money, like individuals save money. But businesses behave differently. Businesses have business-type money, not people-type money, right? And as that business grows or as that enterprise gets funded, I think we were a little late to the game of realizing, like, we don't need to worry about $50 here and $100 there. Like, we need that time back that that gets us. So I've, what I've been experimenting with a lot lately, besides just doing obvious things like, oh, we don't like doing accounting and we're bad at it. Obviously, we should hire somebody to handle our money for us or whatever it is, law or anything that we do. Um, I've been uh, experimenting with personal assistance services, like virtual personal assistance. And that sounds like I can't even believe I'm saying it. Like if it had been even six months ago and I was you know, like, what do you you are just the most pretentious loser that you have like a virtual personal assistant. Like it sounds so awful and stuck up. And, but the thing is like, I get time back from that and it's cheap. Like there's a service where I pay $50 a month and they do 15 things for me in a 30 day period. And there's a little ticker on the side that says, this is how many phone calls we made, how many emails we sent, how many hours we saved you. Right. And for that $50, like, I get like 10 hours of my life back every month. And that really matters when you're super, super busy. So they'll do things like book a plane ticket or research a hotel in whatever city I'm going to because I travel a lot for business. Um, or just whatever it is, you know. And that kind of thing, like, I, when we first started the business, like, no, like, I can do all that. Why would I ever, why would I pay anybody even a dollar to do that? I can do it myself. Like, I'm a hardworking person. I'm going to go out and do all the things myself. Somebody just needed to, like, early on just like smack me around a bit and say like, no, 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 no. Focus on what you really want to be doing and just like ignore the rest or pay something to make it go away. And it's totally, totally, totally worth it in the end. That's good. We're actually out of time, but I'm going to ask my final question that I ask everyone who comes in, which is uh, what are you watching or reading these days? Uh, I've really been watching. Uh, I've really been liking Fargo. I think it's really well written and acted, and it, it's really just a, from a design perspective, it's just a really beautifully shot uh, piece of television. Uh, anything that HBO makes, I'm pretty much a fan of. And uh, 
reading uh, a business book I've read recently. It's called Creativity, Inc. It's sort of the story about how Pixar got started, and it's sort of half management, half, um, you know, how, you, how do you run a business but yet keep the creative spirit alive in, in the business, especially as you grow and get bought by Disney and all that. Um, uh, on the personal side, uh, an author I really enjoyed re- reading recently, his name is John Ronson. He's sort of a nonfiction um, humor, humor author, and uh, he wrote a really great book called The Psychopath Test. And he, I'm reading another one right now called So... I hear He's the guy who wrote The Men Who Start Goats, right? Men Who Start Goats. Okay. I, I think it's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and it's all about the yeah. history of shaming. Um, and it's particularly relevant now because people will post something on Twitter now, and I, I think it was the, the case of the woman who made the really terrible joke, got on a flight, and then when she landed, she was, like, fired, and, like, all of her friends hated her. And um, <laughs> it's sort of, So it's sort of, like, studying the history of shaming and sort of how we do it now and how it's way, way worse than uh, a lot of other forms of punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still really into um, movies, but my first love is radio. Uh, so the podcast world is awesome right now. There's so much cool stuff happening. Uh, so there's all the obvious things like, you know, This American Life, which has been around since the dawn of time, um, uh, Radio Lab and, and Serial, and of course those. But the ones that kind of get unnoticed are Snap Judgment, which is a really awesome storytelling slash This American Life kind of thing. Um, there's, uh, I was actually just talking about this earlier this evening. There's a really great fictional podcast that is like a horror parody of Serial called Limetown. So you should check out Limetown. It's like an old school radio drama, but done like a fake NPR podcast series. <laughs> and it's all one continuous story that's like a big conspiracy theory that's being unraveled in real time. So it's happening like right now. So you can catch up. Like, you know, binge listen and then pick it up from here because the suspense of like every two weeks getting an episode is really super neat. So I spend most of my time um, in the podcast world, actually. Uh, And books, um, let's see, industry-related books. I love books about the psychology of decision-making. So there's a book called Habit, um, which is really, uh, it's very practical. It's like how do we develop thinking patterns and how do we break out of them? Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has written a lot of interesting books on this subject. So like uh, Blink and um, David and Goliath and really just anything that guy's written is really fascinating from a business book perspective and also about psychology and how people think. Um, uh, Fiction, I'm really like I spend all, I just sci-fi, hard sci-fi, hard Uh, (laughs) sci-fi. So right now I'm reading the Mars Trilogy, which is uh, uh, by Kim Stanley Robinson. I'm just halfway through Red Mars, which is the first book. It's, I got a thumbs up in the back. Good. Uh, it's a great series. Um, I have more, but uh, I'll cut it off there. Red Mars. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, visit our site, rtf.utexas.edu. This course was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with lead TA Tim Piper, and the program was produced and edited by the technical TA, that's me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us again next time for another Media Industry Conversation.